Well, I want to start out today with a little bit of a story. There's this man by the name of Milton Lichtman. Milton Lichtman. I've got a slide here of a picture of Milton. You may actually obscurely recognize Milton in that Milton was an actor, recently passed away a few years ago, 87 years old. Uh, Milton was an actor who holds the Guinness Book of World Records for the most characters portrayed by an actor. He portrayed 3,372 roles in commercials. He was a commercial actor. He portrayed uh, Einstein here for a beer commercial. He portrayed Abraham Lincoln for a bank commercial. He actually portrayed uh, the twin brother of, uh, of the Culligan man. Uh, he, he portrayed uh, Margaret Thatcher. He portrayed Gandhi. He portrayed all these different people, all these different people. And right before Milton uh, passed away, he was quoted in a magazine as saying this, Heaven for me is to lie in bed stark naked with no costume, lying in my own face and not someone else's, and luxuriate in my own skin. See, you know, Milton, he, he literally is the definition of what the Greeks called a hypocrite. A, a hypocrite was what they called actors at the time. At, at the time of the Greeks, when they had plays and dramas, uh, women didn't play in, in roles. Men played all the roles. And so men would wear masks and they'd have multiple roles. They wouldn't just play one role in a play or drama, have three or four. And so they would grab a new mask and put it up and portray and act out that character. And they were called hypocrites, people of many faces, people of many faces. Well, today we're going to continue on a little bit of our studying of, of looking at who we are. Last week, we've been talking about God moving and how God is moving through the community. He's moving us physically, but he is moving to restore the world. Amen? And then we talked about, are we the people that God wants us to be to help him restore the world? We, we looked at the challenge of the fact that you are the who. God wants a group of people to help him restore the world, and we, the church, are that people. Amen? Amen. Say, I am the who. I am the who. Yeah, so we are, we are the who. Well, today, I want us to take a look at a very challenging question that Paul gives to the church, and that is, are you who you think you are? Are you really who you think you are? And so we're going to take a look with no hesitation. Go ahead and turn to the book of Romans in chapter 2 on page 676. We're going to take a look at this question. Are you who you think you are from a deep way compared to what God would love us to be? And we're going to take a look at the book of Romans. This is written by the Apostle Paul. And it's in chapter 2 in the early part of his address in this letter. Now, it's called the letter to Romans because Paul is writing to all the Christians, if you will, that are in Rome. Now, the Christians in Rome are a very eclectic, diverse group. There are Jews. There are Greeks. There are people that you would call Gentiles. A, a Gentile isn't a race. A Gentile is uh, what uh, people of Jewish descent would call anybody who's just not Jewish. So a Gentile is everybody else, but there were people from Asia, there were people from Egypt that lived in Rome, and those people converted to Christianity. 
And so Paul writes this letter to them to make sure they have it firmly established in their faith about who God is, about who Jesus is specifically. And there's a great, uh, a great easy way to look at the book of Romans, and that is for the first 12 chapters is this, in essence, this argument or this, um, this logic that lays out why Jesus is the Christ, why he's the Messiah. And then the last chapters after chapter 12 is what that means to us, how we live that out. How does that affect us as a church? So here early on, early on, Paul makes this address. And and so we're going to pick this up in chapter 2 and verse 17. And I ask you, you would read it along with me. And we'll do the first couple of paragraphs, and we're going to break this down a little bit, bit by bit, as we go through. And we're going to see this challenging question, and hopefully God is going to be able to give us the answer of are we who we really think we are for us to be the who that he wants us to be. So verse 17, you who call yourselves Jews are relying on God's law, and you boast about your special relationship with him. You know what he wants, you know what is right, because you have been taught his law. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for the people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God, for you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. Well then, if you teach others... Why don't you teach yourself? You, you tell others not to steal, but you, but do you steal? You say it is wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say, The Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. Well, we're going to pause here for a second and just take this in for a moment. Now, obviously, he's addressing in this moment in time the Jews. They would have taken notice right away in those first five words. You who call yourselves Jews. Now, it's interesting that he uses that term because Jews weren't always called Jews. That originally Jews were called uh, this Arabic word that meant foreigner or uh, it meant immigrant, and it was this word habaru, which is where we get the word Hebrews. During the time of Abraham, they were called habarus. And then as we see the nation grow, as we, excuse me, the people grow, and they become sort of one tribe, if you will, under Israel. And then they, they grow to being about what's thought to believe through history, somewhere between 3 million and 5 million people released by Egypt to go have their own nation. And during the time of the captivity, before they were released, they had the identity and called themselves under the nation, if you will, under the tribe of Israel, the Israelites. And so they were, became from Habaruz to Israelites. Now, when they got their own nation, they have a long history of following God and a long history of not following God. And eventually, about 700 years before Jesus shows up, they get invaded. 
This is after as a, as a nation, a one nation, as they, as they occupy the land in these 12 different tribes, that they've split off into two different countries of Judah and of Israel. And so they, they've formed these two nations and they've had this division and one of them has gotten taken away and the other one has gotten taken away. They've been dispersed and it's thought to believe that during that time of dispersion, that they had somewhere between, they have dwindled down somewhere to be about 300,000 people. And during this time of dispersion, this time when they were being occupied by another country, it's a time as a culture they start to lose a little bit of their identity as being the Israelites. They start to then call themselves just sort of underneath the one remnant nation of Judah, the Jews. So Paul is addressing them with a bit of a cultural context that's important for us to understand. And that context is one of, this is a group of people that's been dispersed, that's been poured out, kind of, if you will, lost a bit of their mojo and their identity over time. But there are people that are still, if you will, identifying as being the chosen people. Even though they're not fully if you will. They're still Hebrews, but that's not their identity. Their identity is not so much to be Hebrews, not so much to be Israelites, but that they're Jews. They're the remnant. And so he's calling them out basically with that name. Hey, you remnant, you remaining people, you Jews, I'm calling you out on something. I'm calling you out on something that you should know better. And you see here that he rattles off this this. Um, conviction to them, saying that, you know, you boast about this relationship you got with God just because you're Jewish, and yet you don't act like you're following God whatsoever. And the world is out there laughing at you. The world is out there blaspheming God because you're not showing up as being the people you say you are. You're not showing up as being people who are following God. He, he goes through this, this code of conduct and this kind of if-then kind of statement. If, if, if you're really following God, then, you know, why are you stealing? If you're really following God, why are you committing adultery? If you're really following God, why do you have idolatry? If you're really following God, you know, why, why do you uh, dishonor him by breaking all his commandments? And, and so we see that what's really important for us to know is this word blasphemy is showing us this path, if you will, of argument that Paul is an indictment towards them. The, the word blasphemy, it, it, it's broken down as a compound word in Greek. It basically means to be sluggish in your fame, to have slow reputation, slow fame. And so this word blaspheme, it, it, it's, it's basically saying to them, look, there are people out there in the world, watching you, watching how you behave, and they're not giving any fame to God. And even in the end, you can see that that Paul points out, he goes, "Um, no wonder the scriptures say the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. That reference is to Isaiah 52. And it's important to know this reference because in Isaiah 52, we can read this together. 
At first, my people went down to Egypt to live. Lately, Assyria has oppressed them. This is the time when they're dispersed, right? And now, what do I have here, declares the Lord. For my people have been taken away from nothing, and those who rule them mock, declares the Lord. And all day long, my name is constantly blasphemed. My name is constantly given slow fame. My name is constantly given negative reputation. Therefore, my people will know my name. Therefore, in that day, they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. They are being convicted way back when in this time for not giving God glory because of how they obeyed him. The reason that they're in this disbursement, the reason that the, the other nations are saying, what kind of God do you have? Your God's not rescuing you because they were disobeying God. They weren't following him. Paul's basically saying to these Jews, you're not who you think you are. You think you're a called people, a chosen people, but you're not acting like it. You're not truly who you think you are. Now he goes into even greater depth with it. He goes into greater depth with it. You, if you look at this issue um, in, in, uh, as it continues on, we can read the next, uh, the next verse in verse 25 as he talks about circumcision. The Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than the uncircumcised Gentile. And if the Gentiles don't obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keeps God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law but don't obey it. For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. So he's now using, he was using blasphemy before. Now Paul's using this aspect of, of circumcision to remind these folks you're not who you think you are. Look, and you look at the word circumcision and what it means culturally to these people, it's very significant. The, the word circumcision comes from this Greek word that simply means peritome. It means to be cut around, which is what it is. You are cut around, right? And, and then the word uncircumcised is actually has a bit more importance for us today in that it means acrobystia, which what covers the extreme end. Literally, it, that compound word is what covers the extreme end. But it was used culturally and synonymously to mean that you don't belong to God. So this act of circumcision was one where as, a, as, a, as a, a child of God or as a human, a Jew or even a, a, even a Gentile. It was this act where you physically became and belonged to God. It, you, you look at the, where circumcision first shows up. It's God talking to Abraham. 
It's in Genesis chapter 17. Here, here are the words, if we can, on the next slide on the screen. In Genesis 17. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision. That's Abraham himself as, as an older man. And it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. The, the, the word from God continues on to the next slide. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or brought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. An uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Circumcision was this act where you, as a physical act, where you physically became part of the covenant with God. You cut off some of your own flesh. You had blood that was spilt to recognize that you are now in a covenant binding you to belong to God. And so here's Paul now, in, in back in Romans, here's Paul letting the Jews know that, look, you say that you made this pledge. You say that you belong, but you are not acting like it. You're not acting like you belong. You're not obeying God. And, and, and it makes this point, of, in essence, now that it's New Testament time, now that we have a, a, a new grace with Jesus, he's making this point that even the Gentiles who are following God, who are loving God, but they're not circumcised, they belong to God. So he's letting them know. He's letting the Jews know very, very clearly. You, don't, you are not who you think you are because you don't belong to God because you're not following him. And he makes it really clear in verse 26, the reason you're not following him is your heart is not following God. It's not about your actions, it's about your heart. Our heart determines our actions, our passion, our emotions determine what we do. And based on what your, where your heart is, your action is disconnected. You are not belonging to God because of where your heart is. So here's a question, here's a real challenging question for us today. Is this just a first century problem? Or is it a today problem? Is this just a Jew problem, or is it a you problem? It's something we need to look at. Because being one with God, belonging to God, being available for him to be the who he wants us to be, is more than just, I got baptized and I believe. Oh, Holy Spirit raining down a little star. Awesome. Praise the Lord. Feel free to grab that if you would like, Marissa. There you go. Happy birthday. We didn't, we're either late in giving you a happy birthday or early. I'm not sure which. But God just touched down and gave you a happy birthday. So the point is, I think we all can see and there's a place out of our heart that disobeys God, that's rebellious. But just being, in essence, Say just saying the sinner's prayer or perhaps even going through the, the New Testament circumcision of baptism isn't enough. There's a oneness with God 
for us to be able to say that we actually belong to Him. That comes from our heart being like His heart. It comes from our heart wanting to do the things that He does. See, it's, it's belonging to God and, and being the people that we, we want to be, being the people who we say we are. It's more than just understanding our identity. It starts there. I, Ephesians chapter uh, 2 says it very, very well about, you know, what our identity is. God is so rich in his mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And it's only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead long ago and Christ with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. That's our identity. We are seated with him in the throne of God, risen. That's who we are. It starts there, but it's more than that. In essence, it kind of takes, if you will, our passion and it takes an outpouring of our heart to, to maintain that, that posture of oneness with Him. Because as, as our heart drifts away into sin, it disconnects us, which is what Paul is saying to these people. What you are doing is ruining what God is giving to you. What God has given to you is blessing, is, is part of His family, it's, it's His protection, it's His provision. There are worldly things, but there are spiritual things. There's a oneness. There's a peace. There's a calm. There's a resolve of of having a purpose in life, recognizing that I'm here for a reason. You're ruining that by our disobedience. We're ruining our our identity. That's not seated with Him. That's not acting risen. See, to, to be the people that we're supposed to be, it takes more than just identity. It takes it takes an intimacy. It takes an intimacy. Look what uh, David cried out in one of his psalms. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. There's a desire here. You can see Paul's passion is to have that oneness with him. And we see this as well in Scripture when when Jesus talks about the heart in Luke chapter, uh, excuse me, um, no, yes, John 17. In, in John 17, he, uh, Jesus talks about the glory that you've given me, talking to Father God as he's praying. Jesus says, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them, my followers, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. You know, many times we've heard that, that phrase that, you know, um, that religion without relationship, religion without relationship, that, that it, it's just legalism, right? But there's also the aspect, there's also this aspect, though, of relationship without religion. That's just relativism. If I'm just, okay, I'm with God, but I don't follow him. I, I do what I please. 
then you're just having a relative, all roads lead, I can do whatever I want kind of God. It requires both. It requires both. We need to have this intimacy, but we also need to have an intentionality. We need to have an intention in our relationship. And that intention is of following Him, of, of obeying Him. And, 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 and obeying Him, understanding that His commands are not hard, they're not, um, they're not burdensome, they're light, they're easy, they allow us to live in His love and to be in the flow of how He is restoring the world. Look at these words here on the screen as, as this intimacy shows up in John chapter 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. We need to come to him, not intimacy, but come to him and do what he is doing. Move with him, not just understand him, but move with him, come to him. Ask him what he is going, where he is doing, being tuned with his, his words, reading our scriptures, reading the Bible, understanding his voice for the day, and understanding his character and how he is moving. And we also see this intentionality also shows up for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul writes to the eclectic, diverse group in Corinth. He says, so all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed in His glorious image. The intentionality changes over time. We're transformed. We're, we're moving. But it's not a static thing. It's not a place that we stop. We don't just go, oh, okay, I'm a Christian now. I'm baptized now. No, we keep moving forward and pursuing Him and having Him change and transform. And if we're not, then... As Paul is saying here, we're not the people who we think we are. So to be the people that we want to be, in essence, we need to be cut. We need to be cut. We need to cut off our sin. We need to cut off our, our places of our hearts that aren't with God. You see that that's the purpose of, of baptism. Look at in um, Colossians chapter 2. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your heart, the sinful nature part of your heart. For you were buried with Christ when you were immersed in that water, when you were baptized. And with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. So th this message, it might have a little bit of a, of a sober tone to it, but it's one where we need, if we're going to say that we're going to be people that are the who, that we're going to be people to be used by God to restore the world, we've got to be willing to be cut by the heart. Just cut to the heart. We have to have a, 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 a posture of ongoing humility for God to show us what is our sin and how he wants to remove it. So let's take a time of prayer. Let's take a time of prayer now and, and recognize that, that we need to be cut to the heart. Lord, we know that this isn't just a, a Jewish problem back then. It's a problem right now. It's a problem that's probably 
deeper in the church than you would care to like. We have actions in the church that don't line up with who we are. We chastise people for their sexual promiscuity and yet we have sexual abuse scandals amongst us. We talk a lot about the LGBTQ community and yet do we give the love and the compassion and the mercy that you would give them our prayer Lord is that we can be a vibrant people of love and mercy and tenderness with truth prayer Lord is that you would show us how you want us to be faithful. Show us what it looks like to actually live out good news in every area of our life. Show us our fear. Show us our insecurity. Show us where we've not forgiven. Show us where we're holding on. Show us where we're still in action of sin, not fully surrendered to your delivering and setting us free. Show us your generosity. Show us what it's like to love like Jesus in every situation. Show us, Lord, how to be a people coming back to life new in you. We pray this for your sake, Jesus. Did you speak to us throughout this week? That this wouldn't just be some kind of thought that's mused over for just a few minutes today. Lord, my prayer is you'd remind us to be the people that we say we are. And thank you for your grace and your tenderness to guide us to be those lovers of Jesus for the world. In your son's name we pray and all God's children said, Amen. Amen.